1: when a young mother is beaten to death in front of her two kids. I can't imagine what those children went through. The Florida resort town of Safety Harbor fears the worst.
3: I think the community definitely thought, whoa, if that could happen to her, could that happen to me? It takes more than two years to weed through the suspects. To be honest, he's the most aggressive person I've ever met.
1: And zero in on the killer. About an hour into the interview, I
4: realized that we were sitting
1: with the person who just murdered Nikki Halpin. But proving it will take a dedicated civil servant.
5: When I realized that I had witnessed a murder, it was probably
1: the most chilling thing I've ever heard. How well do you know your neighbors? What lies behind the white picket fences? Along the shores of Tampa Bay sits the town of Safety Harbor. It's just a shell's throw away from the crowded beaches to the south. And it's a community that lives up to its name.
3: Safety Harbor is known as a very safe town. It's not the type of place where you see homicides or major crimes very often. Things shut down at night.
4: Um, The streets are quiet.
1: 32-year-old Nikki Halpin and her husband, Don, moved here from their native Massachusetts. Now divorced, Safety Harbor is the perfect place for this mother of two to make a fresh start.
6: The house that she settled on in Safety Harbor, she picked because it reminded her of New England, where you have the big old maples and the oak trees growing in everyone's backyard.
1: It's a laid-back community. And soon, Nikki makes some new friends. Good friends. She and Kim scoff are almost like sisters.
4: Nikki and I met through our youngest children's elementary school, and uh, we just hit it off right away. Decided to go have coffee one morning, and it ended up turning into coffee every single day. We would talk about our kids and guys and our family and laugh a lot.
1: Nikki and Kim are also rediscovering the fun of being single. Every now and then, they hire a sitter, let loose, and paint the town red.
4: On Friday nights, we would go out dancing. And it wasn't to meet men or anything. It was just to dance and have a good time.
1: Nikki is bubbly, outgoing, and attractive. And while she may not have been looking for a man, it wasn't long before a man found her. Computer technician Chris Perconti. They start dating. But Nikki's cautious. She takes things slowly.
4: She, I don't think, was looking to settle down at this point now. I think she just wanted to go out on dates and enjoy herself, just as any single woman who just got out of a divorce would probably feel.
1: Like Nikki, Chris is from up north, and he misses northern winters. So the two of them decide to take a ski trip.
4: Nikki was pretty excited about that because she hadn't gone skiing for quite some time and she used to be an avid skier.
1: For Nikki and Chris, the trip is a real opportunity to tear up the slopes and maybe bring their relationship to a whole new level. But some things are just not meant to be. Pinellas County Deputy Brad Ferguson has been working the safety harbor beat for more than 20 years. Typically... Thursday evenings are pretty quiet. Thursday, January 8th, 2004, though, turns out to be anything but.
7: Sector 36 Alpha, I'm 1051. I received the call on approximately 9.30 and responded in reference to a general incident.
1: The general incident is a crime in progress in the Baywood neighborhood. Sheriff's
6: Office, can I help you? I need somebody to immediately to go to Clearview in Safety Harbor. Okay.
1: The 911 caller is on the line with Nikki Halpin, and what he hears is terrifying.
5: I was on the phone with her. She's my girlfriend there. I heard a ton of screaming. I hear a ton of noise. I don't know what's going on.
1: Deputy Ferguson heads for Clearview Drive to the address given by dispatch. But something isn't right.
7: I went to the house... It was the dispatched address, and made contact with a male at the residence. As I spoke to the male, it became apparent that it was not occurring at this residence. Yeah, I'm wondering if it's
5: the wrong address. In, in clear here. Okay. All right.
1: I'm sorry. With precious minutes ticking by, officers are two houses away from where they need to be. Finally the confusion is cleared up.
7: When we approach the correct address, the house is secure. The neighbor from the original address came up to the house with us. He began yelling in for Nicole. Within several minutes, children appeared inside the house, and the neighbor told the children to come to the front door and unlock the door.
1: They do, and the door opens to a heartbreaking scene. One of the children
7: was asked, where's your mom? And the child replied, my mom's in the back bedroom, but she's hurt. When I got closer to her, I saw that there was blood coming from the left side of her head. And that's when I walked further into the room and discovered she had been hit in the head.
1: Detective Ferguson checks her vital signs. She's alive, barely.
7: I call for fire rescue to come to the scene because
1: Nicole was still breathing. As the ambulance pulls away, 18-year veteran Detective Ed Judy pulls up. Nikki Halpin, his key witness, is clinging to life. And the only people he can turn to for information are two folks who saw the crime up close, her two sons, six-year-old Drew, and eight-year-old Max.
8: Max was in the bedroom. He shared a bedroom with his mother. And the television was found on. The video game was actually playing at the time. And the cord for the controller is actually underneath Nikki's body with the controller being up by the pillow or the head of the bed where Max would have been sitting.
1: Detective Ed Judy comes to a disturbing conclusion.
8: He was less than three feet away from his mother when she was attacked by the assailant on the same bed.
1: For a detective, a young child as an eyewitness to a crime is always problematic. But in Max's case, there's something else. He has a medical condition. And in the shock of what's happened, he's unable to speak. Unable to describe what he saw. So with nowhere else to turn, Detective Judy interviews Max's brother, Drew. He's even younger. Two years younger. And he told us
8: that the family had been out, had pizza, that they were out with mommy's boyfriend Chris, and they dropped Chris off at his house, and then they came home.
1: Drew went to the living room to do some homework. That's when all hell broke loose.
8: He said that he heard his mom scream, and he saw his mom running from the spare bedroom into her bedroom with a man chasing her, uh, who he described a man in all black. Uh, With a bat in his right hand and a mask on.
1: A brutal attack witnessed by two boys under 10, one of whom can barely speak. It's not much to go on, but Detective Judy is about to find out that someone may have had a motive to kill Nikki, a million dollar motive. The American Dream, a house in the suburbs on a quiet cul-de-sac, a place where kids play out in the street. Definitely not where you'd expect 32-year-old Nikki Halpin, mother of two, to be attacked in her own home, left clinging to
3: life. There was a lot of shock in the community. There was definitely a feeling that there was a killer on the loose.
1: Chris Tish has worked the crime beat for the St. Petersburg Times for more than a decade. Most of the action is in the nearby cities of Clearwater or Tampa, not here in Safety Harbor.
3: I think the community definitely thought, whoa, if that could happen to her, could that happen to me? I'm sure there was a lot more locking of doors, making sure the security system worked. Nikki Halpin is in intensive care.
1: 1,500 miles away in northeastern Massachusetts, her parents have no idea their oldest daughter is fighting for her life.
6: We were sleeping, and my husband heard the doorbell ring. All I kept on hearing him was screaming, no, no. And then I looked over to the doorway, and there was a policeman there.
1: The policeman tells them their daughter has been brutally attacked. Nikki's parents catch the next flight for St. Petersburg and head straight for the hospital.
6: We went in and we were just in disbelief. And Nelson looked at me, he said, it doesn't look good. And I said, no, it doesn't look good at all.
1: Nikki is brain dead, being kept alive by a respirator her parents must face the unthinkable, whether or not to unplug the machine.
6: I just hugged her, told her what a wonderful mom and daughter she was, and that every day I lived, I would live in her name. And then I, I, I just laid on her body, and I sang this song to her. I used to sing to her when she was a little kid. Nikki's mama's baby. I was have sang her for 15 minutes. And then I realized, you know, I, I, I can't go on like this forever.
1: Doctors remove Nikki's respirator. Soon after, she dies. A brutal assault is now a homicide. Ed Judy has been a detective in Pinellas County for 18 years. It's a tough job. And nothing helps him clear his mind, like the roar of twin outboards. It's a big motor
8: and uh, makes all kinds of noise when you start it up.
1: For Detective Ed Judy, power boating is all about getting back to nature.
8: It'll be full of fish. Birds are everywhere. And it's just you out there.
1: Back on land, Ed Judy is about to lead his first ever homicide investigation. He has one task, find Nikki's killer.
8: I believe that this was a three-day crime scene uh, processing. We're obviously looking for fingerprints, we're looking for DNA, we're looking for any type of evidence that we may have inside the scene. It's a long and tedious process.
1: And so far investigators aren't making much progress.
8: As things were sent to the lab to be analyzed, we were finding nothing
1: of evidentiary value. But it's the lack of evidence that gives detectives their first real clue. I was told that it was a masked intruder, which
8: makes me think that he could be easily identified. Therefore, he wants to hide his identity. Um, And then I was told that the kids were not injured, which also led me to think that the children would know who the masked person was
1: Job one is interviewing those closest to Nikki, starting with her boyfriend, Chris Perconti.
8: He was the last person seen with Nikki prior to this attack, and statistically, if somebody's murdered, especially a female, it's gonna be someone that they know, and that's, that's our starting point, is with him.
1: Detectives need to know more about this relationship. Luckily, there's one person who knows just about everything Nikki her best friend, Kim.
4: I did not think the relationship was going anywhere. But I believe he really liked Nikki and wanted it to be exclusive.
1: But this romance wasn't all smooth sailing.
4: He and Nikki had quite a few arguments, whether it was on the phone or in person. They had a lot of good times also.
1: A few arguments doesn't seem like much of a motive for murder. But what about jealousy? Jealousy.
8: Through our investigation, we learned that Nikki had possibly seen other men and that she was on a website conversing with other people other than Christopher at the time that this occurred.
4: I don't believe Chris knew that Nikki was seeing other people as well.
1: Or investigators wonder what if Chris did know? What if he wasn't all too happy to be sharing his new girl? He provided us with the wrong address for the location. Giving the wrong address is suspicious. But for detectives, it simply doesn't add up to murder. Christopher was fully cooperative with our investigation.
8: He allowed us full access to his residence. He provided us with laptop information, computer information, cell phone records, and home phone records.
1: For Chris, honesty turns out to be the best policy.
8: Based upon uh, cell phone records, UMS search of his hardline phone as well as computer records at his residence. He could not have been at the location at the time that Nikki was murdered.
1: Chris Perconti is not the killer, but investigators aren't done with him yet. He's a wealth of information about the night Nikki was attacked. Christopher had provided us with a timeline for what Nikki and the two boys had done that evening. Nikki and the boys grabbed some dinner. They met Chris, did a little shopping, then headed home.
8: Nikki dropped Christopher off back at his home before returning to her residence.
1: So far, nothing out of the ordinary. Then, once Chris gets inside, things get a little strange. Christopher has a
8: laptop computer which he opens to turn on, and it begins to log itself onto the internet automatically. And then he hears the alarm that tells him he has an instant
1: message from Nikki. The message simply says HB. For Chris, it doesn't make sense. He writes back. So he
8: types, hey, what did you do? Run every red light? How'd you get home so fast? A few minutes later, he receives a second instant message from Nikki, stating, I didn't write this. Christopher responds, if you didn't write it, who wrote it? She says, I'm
1: calling you. Nikki wants to know, has someone else been on her computer? More importantly, are they still in the house? Nikki tells Chris to stay on the line while she searches the premises.
7: Then Chris said to me that all hell broke loose.
6: Nikki, can you hear me?
8: When the attack occurs, Chris picks up his cellular phone and dials 911 on his other ear. So he has two phones going.
5: I need somebody immediately to
8: go to Fairview in Safety Harbor. Okay. He says, get the police there, get an ambulance there. Something's going on. I hear a ton of noise.
1: I think she's being attacked. Unwittingly, Chris becomes an ear witness. He hears the crime in progress. It's a terrifying ordeal. But one that just might hold the answer to who committed this brutal attack. Safety Harbor, Florida, is an affluent community, a good place to raise a family. So when Nikki Halpin is attacked in her own home, residents begin to wonder, is there safe haven by the sea being swept up in a crime wave?
3: The sheriff's office was pretty tight-lipped at first. They weren't saying a lot. They said that Nikki was attacked by a man in black who was wearing a mask. It almost seemed to be a burglar caught in the act. Well, anybody could be burglarized. So there was certainly a great sense of fear in the city. Police do know more than they're saying.
1: But that doesn't mean they're anywhere close to solving this mystery.
3: The sheriff's office came out and said, well, we think she was targeted. But I think people can come to the conclusion that she was probably killed, or at least the sheriff's office believes she was killed by someone she knew.
1: That narrows down the field a bit. But investigators still don't have a motive or a suspect. They have learned, though, that recently divorced Nikki was taking advantage of her newfound freedom.
8: Nikki was a very outgoing, very friendly person, and a lot of people were drawn to her. So that does lead to a lot more possible suspects.
1: Detective Ed Judy needs to locate anyone who spent time with Nikki during the months and days leading up to her death.
8: We knew that based on information from Kimberly Scoff, Nikki liked to go to a nightclub and socialize. But we also learned from her personal computer that she talked in chat rooms on the internet with other men at the time that this occurred.
1: So just who were these guys? And what did Nikki really know about them? First on detectives list is a man named Brian Wilsden.
4: She called me on the phone and said that she had just met Jesus. (laughs) She had just met a guy, and she said that he looked like Jesus. (laughs) It was sort of a joke, but that's the way she described him.
1: They went out and, from all accounts, had a nice time. But what Detective Judy hears next piques his interest.
4: The very next day after Nikki went on a date with Brian, he called her multiple times. She didn't really want to develop a relationship with him. So she didn't answer the call, but he continued to call and call and call all day.
1: Could Nikki be the victim of an obsessed admirer? Well, the evidence says no.
8: We were able to locate Brian, and he was eliminated based upon his geographical location at the time of the homicide.
1: Nikki was friendly and attractive. Not surprisingly, she caught the eye of more than one suitor.
8: We learned of another individual, Troy, who was a frequent person at her gym. He seemed to be overly friendly. He would walk her out to the car without being asked to do so. But the night Nikki was attacked, Troy was out of town. Troy was also eliminated as being the perpetrator of this
1: homicide. For investigators, it's another dead end. Everyone they've contacted so far has been on the up and up.
4: I did not feel her dating was dangerous. She wasn't, you know, just picking up random guys. She was just meeting people and and dating.
1: Police feel the same way. In fact, while investigators have been digging into Nikki's recent dating history, they've also been looking at her past, specifically at her ex-husband, Don. Experience tells them that a murder committed in such a brutal, physical, and personal way points to a killer the victim knew well.
6: When this happened to Nikki,
4: I think I, more than anyone else, thought it was Don. Nikki and Don had an estranged relationship. He didn't have a lot of involvement in the children's lives. And they didn't get along very well.
1: An ex-boxer, Nikki's former husband, once went toe to toe with Iron Mike Tyson. And there's never been any love lost between Don and Nikki's family.
6: I thought he was probably too old for her, almost 20 years older than her. He had been married several times before.
1: Nikki had just turned 20 when she and Don got married. Before long, she gave birth to a baby boy. A happy occasion, but a stressful one as well.
4: Max was in and out of the hospital since he was an infant, and they didn't expect him to live very long.
1: Max survived, but he needed round-the-clock care. And the strain of raising a special needs child was difficult on the newlyweds.
6: They had a lot of arguments, mostly about the kids. Um, sometimes about money. She was always complaining that she never had enough money and he wasn't helping her enough.
1: The stress was finally too much to bear. Nikki files for divorce.
4: I just know in the end they were both very unhappy, and she couldn't wait to get divorced. We were actually going to have a divorce party. Um, She was pretty excited about it.
1: Like so many splits, their divorce wasn't pretty. But there's another fact that shines the spotlight on Nikki's ex. Turns out, he might have had something more to gain by Nikki's death than just his freedom.
8: There was a trust fund in excess of a million dollars for Max, and that Nikki was the guardian for the trust fund. If Nikki were to die, Don, as the biological father, would become most likely the guardian of that trust fund.
1: The trust fund was a settlement, a payout related to Max's medical condition. With Nikki gone, Don is put in charge of the fund. Investigators decide to pay him a visit.
8: Don was gruff, not uncooperative, but gruff. And um, Don was not going to be intimidated. Don was just going to tell you what he wanted to tell you. And there's a large age difference between Don and Nikki. And through what we know, through studies, that a large difference in age is a factor in domestic homicides.
1: An older ex-husband, a former boxer, a million-dollar motive. Detective Judy is pretty suspicious. He asks Don to take a polygraph test. And what the test reveals shakes this case to its very core. Get more Nightmare Next Door online at investigation.discovery.com The murder of 32-year-old Nikki Halpin is a devastating blow to the small Florida bayside community of Safety Harbor. Even more disturbing is the fact that her two young children witnessed the vicious attack.
3: When I observed the children, they seemed to be really shell-shocked. You could just tell that sort of everything had been kind of drained from them. You know, to watch your mother be killed
8: in your home, you know, where you should be safe, where everyone should be safe, I can't imagine what, what those children went through.
1: Even if Detective Ed Judy can't bring back the boy's mother, he can try to bring her killer to justice. But what if the killer was their very own father?
4: At first, I suspected Don because, to be honest, he's the most aggressive person I've ever met. And I know that they didn't have a very good relationship.
1: Then detectives get the results from Don's polygraph. And they sure aren't helping his case.
8: The polygraph indicated that there was deception for the question if he knew who
1: committed this offense. How could he know who killed Nikki? unless he was the killer himself. But Don has an alibi, a pretty airtight one.
8: We were able to confirm Don's alibi, that he was at work in St. Petersburg Beach, Florida at the time of the attack. There was video surveillance. There were co-workers' testimony. And then there were also several bridges that he had to cross that were video recorded.
1: Don was not the killer, and was in no way involved in Nikki's murder. So why did he fail the polygraph? What exactly is he trying to hide? During our interview with Don, he tells us about the person who
8: he blames for breaking up his marriage to Nikki, Daniel Welch.
1: Nikki and Dan started dating just after she and Don separated.
8: Don also provided a lot of background information, clues that we would look for as homicide investigators, and although he doesn't call it stalking, it's obviously that that Dan Welch is stalking her.
1: Don is clearly no fan of Dan Welch. But Detective Ed Judy knows when it comes to judging boyfriends, the ex-husband may not always see things objectively. So, he searches out a second opinion.
6: Dan was very quiet, uh, very polite, seemed to be very responsible.
4: I really liked Dan. I thought he was a great guy. He's seemed to really care about Nikki.
1: Dan seemed to be the perfect antidote to a failed marriage. For Nikki, he was a fresh start, a promising future. But there was one snag.
6: He wasn't getting serious as she thought he would be. He had even told me on the phone that he bought her something nice and sparkly for Christmas, and so she thought it was a diamond ring. And it wasn't. It turned out to be a diamond bracelet, which is nice, but it wasn't what she was looking for. And she realized that maybe he was never going to make that commitment.
1: Then Nikki began to have second thoughts. The longer she spent with Dan, the more uncertain about him she felt. By the
4: time Dan wanted to commit to Nikki, it was too late. She started to see a side of Dan that wasn't very appealing to her. Nikki started to believe that he was just with her for the trust fund money.
1: The money from Nikki's legal settlement was finally secure, and Dan's interest in it made her nervous. So in September of 2003, Nikki called it quits for good. At first, the breakup seemed uneventful. Then, things started to change.
4: One night when we were going for coffee, He came whipping around my vehicle, almost knocking me off the road and then pulled up next to her car, so close really that she couldn't get out and was begging for her to take him back.
1: As time went by, the number of incidents seemed to escalate.
8: Nikki actually called Kimberly and Kim said, what's wrong? And she says... DAN'S OUTSIDE, BANGING ON THE DOOR AND BANGING ON THE WINDOWS, TRYING TO GET IN. I'M HIDING SO HE'LL GO AWAY.
4: SHE WAS SAYING, I JUST WANT YOU TO STAY ON THE PHONE WITH ME. I ASKED HER IF I SHOULD CALL 911 AND SHE SAID NO, SHE'S FINE. SHE JUST WANTS HIM TO LEAVE.
1: DAN'S OBSESSIVE BEHAVIOR BEGINS TO SCARE NIKKI AND SCARE KIM AS WELL.
4: WE TALKED ABOUT HER GETTING A RESTRAINING ORDER AGAINST DAN, BUT SHE WAS A VERY GOOD PERSON. Nikki was afraid of it ruining his life.
1: Detective Ed Judy knows impressions can be wrong, dead wrong. So, as the clock ticks without an arrest, he decides to investigate Dan Welch. We went to his residence and he asked
8: what he could do for us. And we told him that we were at the sheriff's office and that we wanted to talk to him about Nikki. He just shook his head, not knowing what we were talking about. And we said, Nikki, your ex girlfriend. At that time, he said, oh, you mean Nicole. I've been expecting you guys. So my partner and I were a little suspicious of
1: his response. Dan's cooperative with detectives. He invites them into his home and lets them have a good look around. But before they can ask him any questions, Dan starts acting suspicious. He makes a call to a person police later determine is his current girlfriend.
7: While
8: we were waiting, Mr. Welch mentioned to this person on the other phone that he was the prime suspect. He stated that the kids were not hurt, she was not robbed, she was not raped, and she was bashed in her head. Now these are items that are not released to the media. What I'm thinking is that we're listening to the killer provide details that no one outside of law enforcement had.
1: Police decide not to confront him with questions about his suspicious behavior, at least not yet. Instead, they ask where he was on the night of the murder. Dan claims he was nowhere near the scene of the crime.
8: Dan provided us with an alibi that um, he had had some Chinese food delivered to his residence. He ate dinner, and then he went out bicycling and jogging with his friend and came home and went to bed.
1: The friend is a neighbor who's training for a marathon. Dan often goes out with him for support. So far, the story sounds plausible, but detectives need to check it out. In the meantime, they ask him to come down to the station for a polygraph test. He scored a negative 19.
8: The polygraph examiner tells me that's unbelievable number
1: showing deception. Detectives finally feel they're making some real headway. But they still lack the hard evidence they'll need to press charges. That means they're a long way from declaring case closed. We felt like we
8: knew who committed the murder, but we were far from proving it.
7: Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ
2: Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N O O M.com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Safety Harbor,
1: Florida. Months have passed since the ruthless murder of Nikki Halpin. The crime scene tape is gone. The dust has settled. And neighbors have found new topics to gossip about over the garden fence.
3: This was a case that we did not want to let be forgotten. We wanted to keep it in the public eye as much as we could, remind people that the case was unsolved.
1: There's one person, though, who certainly hasn't forgotten the case. Detective Ed Judy. He's narrowed the list of suspects down to a single name, Daniel Welch. But those closest to Nikki are having trouble seeing her quiet, shy ex-boyfriend as the killer.
6: I did not suspect Dan at all. He seemed like he didn't have it in him. I mean, he was a kind person.
1: Kind or not, Dan Welch's polygraph score was a negative 19. That's pretty damning. So what about Dan's rap sheet? That's just it. He doesn't have one. Daniel Welch had absolutely no criminal
8: history at the time that this homicide occurred. Uh, He had two or three traffic citations in his entire life.
1: Detective Ed Judy knows that nailing a man with no previous record for murder won't be easy. Worse for his case, there's nothing to tie Dan Welch directly to the murder of Nikki Halpin. Nothing, that is, until a civil servant with an eagle ear steps in. Genevieve Myers is at her desk every morning by 7.30 a.m. She's a transcriber for the Pinellas County Sheriff's Office. She types out police interviews, dispatches, wiretaps, and 911 calls including the call from Nikki's boyfriend, Chris, recorded the night of the murder.
5: It was very quiet that day. I went to check out a tape, and it happened to be the 911 call. I sat down at my desk, put my headphones on, and started transcribing. Sheriff's office, can I
6: help you? Yes, I need somebody to immediately to go to Clearview in Safety Harbor.
1: Genevieve has been a transcriber for almost 10 years. She thought she'd heard it all.
5: I have heard the story where people say that the hair stands up on the back of their neck and the hair did stand up on the back of my neck.
1: The 911 recording she's transcribing actually picked up the audio of the crime in progress from the phone in Chris's other hand. On tape is the voice of the killer. Genevieve is literally hearing a murder as it happens.
5: It was probably the most chilling thing I've ever heard. I I will never forget that moment.
8: She plays the tape for us, and my partner and I listened to it numerous times, maybe 10 times, before we were
1: able to hear what she's referring to. But like a diamond in the rough waiting to be discovered... It's there.
5: When I heard the man in the background say, Nicole, calm down, it was crystal clear. A hundred percent, I knew that the voice in the background was Dan Welch. He had a certain tone in his voice. And this was the tone that I heard on the other end of the line.
1: But how did Genevieve zero in on something everyone else had missed? Genevieve Myers had spent, I want to say,
8: in excess of 100 hours transcribing all of our interviews and controlled phone calls we had with Daniel Welch. And luckily, she did the 9-11 call
1: last. Genevieve also picked up on another clue.
5: Dan Welch was the only one that called her Nicole, All of her friends, her relatives, all called her Nikki.
1: But will this recording convince a jury? Detective Ed Judy isn't so sure. He sends the tape to a military facility with the technology to isolate and enhance the voice. Then he plays the recording for those who know Dan best.
8: We received a telephone call from Dan Welch's sister and she had heard that there was an audio recording. We doubted her impartiality, but we decided that it would be okay to meet with her and to play this for her, which we did. During that meeting, she positively identified Dan Welch's voice on the tape and stated that that was the maddest she's ever heard her brother in her entire life.
1: Detective Ed Judy is convinced, but he fears even this smoking gun could be chalked up as circumstantial evidence. Then, almost on cue, Dan Welch screws up. Screws up big time. It turns out he's not so squeaky clean after all.
8: We'd learned that Dan Welch was selling prescription
1: narcotics. Dan was prescribed a painkiller for a work-related injury. Sounds like he turned that prescription into cold, hard cash he's arrested on drug charges.
3: So here's a guy who all of a sudden has the glare of a homicide investigation on top of him. Then he's got a drug charge, a trafficking charge, a felony, a major crime. So now he's sort of caught.
1: Dan Welch is sentenced to three and a half years for distributing controlled narcotics. Investigators have him right where they want him, in a prison cell. And now that Dan is a convicted felon, they know that his nice guy persona will be forever tarnished in front of a jury. Police decide to play their hand, and in January 2006, Dan Welch is charged and later indicted for murder. The gamble pays off. Dan decides to cop a plea. I think Dan Welch pled guilty
8: because when he sat down and he went over all the discovery items that were provided to him, He heard the audio recording. He knew he was guilty. He could have gone to trial, but I think his conscience got to him.
1: Already in prison on the drug conviction, Dan Welch is sentenced to 25 years for the murder of Nikki Halpin. Looks like he'll be behind bars for a long time.
4: I feel like his sentence was nowhere near enough. He should be spending life in jail, and he'll be walking around when the kids are older and have that freedom, and Nikki will never have that.
1: Following the trail of evidence and piecing together eyewitness accounts, investigators believe that on the night of January 8, 2004, Dan Welch went to Nikki's home with a single plan to murder the woman who had spurned him. He went in the side garage door. He
8: was masked, he was gloved, nobody was home. He went into the master bedroom, and she had left her laptop computer on, on her bed.
1: With a stroke of the keyboard, he accidentally sends a message to Nikki's boyfriend. A message that simply says, HB. When Chris sends,
8: hey, how did you get home so fast? What did you do, run every red light? Dan now knows
1: that she's on her way home. Nikki and the boys pull up, get out of the car, and head inside. Drew went to do his homework. Max went to his
8: video game, and she came into the bedroom where Max was, sees the computer on, realizes she didn't write the previous messages, and tells Chris, hey, something's going on here. I'm calling you. Let me check out the house.
1: That's when Dan Welch attacked Nikki Halpin. Nikki. Her murder shocked this small community. And solving this homicide took the unwavering determination of investigators and one sharp-eared civil servant.
5: I'm very proud of what I've done. I do feel like I helped put a killer behind bars, and it it was a great feeling.
3: I've covered hundreds of homicide cases in my career. I don't know that I've ever seen one that came together quite like this one.
1: Sadly, for those closest to Nikki the wound of losing her will never heal.
4: I just miss her friendship. We were closer than sisters. I just miss her companionship, and I'll never get over it.
1: For the residents of Safety Harbor, life goes on. They still drink coffee on Main Street and sail the calm waters of the Tampa Bay. But the murder of one of their own reminds them, sometimes, There is no safe harbor from the storm.
0: Planning for your next trip?